I probably should have been a lawyer. God knows I argue too damn much. Sometimes it's about something I'm passionate about. Sometimes it's just to be contrarian and try to get others to see things a different way. And sometimes it's just for sport. And a little known fact about me, I am a huge Supreme Court junkie. Love it. Like, love everything about it. And I've read The Brethren and The Nine both three times each. I read Supreme Court decisions like they are romance novels. Not even kidding. Not a big surprise to anyone. Yes, I'm a nerd. And sometimes I think the Supreme Court and lawyers in general uh, can get a bad rap. Don't get me wrong. Uh, There are plenty of lawyers who are unscrupulous and useless. Usually those are called politicians. Uh, But there are also many who study and then practice the law because they really hope to do good and hope to have a positive impact on the world around them. There are many lawyers who seek fairness and who try to be impartial and have integrity to hold wrongdoers to account and help stand up for the weak. Now, attorneys, they're all human too, so they most certainly have their own opinions about things, and sometimes they interpret the laws differently. But Good judges and good lawyers do try to serve justice and respect the law. And the very best of those attorneys have an incredible impact, sometimes on history itself. I'm Clay Aiken, and Politicon's guest this week on How the Heck Are We Going to Get Along is just that kind of lawyer. Jill Weinbanks was a Watergate prosecutor who later became the first woman to serve as general counsel for the U.S. Army and then became the first woman to be the executive director of the American Bar Association. And she is a member of the Politicon family herself. She is serving as a co-host for two Politicon podcasts, Hashtag Sisters in Law and the brand new intergenerational discussion, iGen politics. She's on this week, and I'll ask her, how much have things changed in D.C. since the Watergate era? Do politicians just not trust each other anymore? Do we as Americans not trust each other anymore? Would any changes in the political system actually even improve our polarization if we've all decided what we're going to believe anyway? And of course, I'll ask her, how the heck are we going to get along? (laughs) Right. <laughs> no, but I, I am this, I am sort of, like I love the Supreme Court. I don't know why it fascinates me so much. I am so, I have read The Brethren and The Nine three oh, times each. Good books. Um, Listen to the audio books. And I'm such a Supreme Court nerd that I have favorite justices. Do you have favorite justices? I do. Who are yours? I do. And mine go back a long way. Who are they? Uh, mine. Well, of course, Ruth Bader Ginsburg um, has to be at the top of the list. Sandra Day O'Connor, okay, because she was right. the first. Um, all the other women that have wait that's that are on okay, now. So two others. Uh, but, <laughs> yeah, um, Marshall is a, an old favorite, um, and Brennan. Yeah, and <laughs> you know those are. I'd say those are some. Oh, Douglas. Douglas, oh. partly because of his personality. He's a crazy. Uh, I, I mean, his decisions too, but he was such a great outdoorsman. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I was friends with his, I don't know what number wife it was, Kathy, who was quite a bit younger than he was, um, who, who survived him. And I like all of them. And of course, Justice Breyer, because he is a Watergate colleague of mine. Oh, so right. He's, so, Oh, right. I didn't even think and of that. And his younger brother is a judge, too. Actually, he's... His, his younger brother's... He's one of my favorites. He's actually near the top of my list. Oh, good. And it's because I am... I don't know. There's something about Breyer and Kagan on the current court for me yes. who I feel do... the not, not Even the ones who I can't stand because I think that some of them are real... I mean, I can't stand a few of them. But I try my best to believe that even when I completely disagree with them, that six, at least six of the nine, sometimes seven of the nine, are trying their best to decide cases 
without politics. They certainly interpret the law in very different ways than I would. But I, I, you know, I feel like they do. But I, for something, there's something about Breyer and Kagan who just to me, and I don't know, you're the pro, they feel like the ones who are really doing their best to try to be more unifying and try to find ways to, to agree with the other people and compromise. Is that about, is that, do you think? Yeah, I, I think that's true. And I think, I think Sotomayor would be in that same middle, you know, trying to get along. And, and obviously Justice Roberts yeah. is in that category in ways that I would have never predicted, but he's turning out to be something that could save the yeah. court because I think the court is at risk if it gets too terribly polarized. There are that's a it, problem. It's, it's rarer now that someone surprises in a decision, right? That it's not very often that yeah. someone makes you go, oh, whoa. I mean, Gorsuch occasionally can do that, right? He can occasionally oh, yeah. decide something yeah. like the same sex case uh, not long ago where he decided or he he agreed that that's discrimination to fire someone who who is gay yeah. um occasionally there but you know why don't we appreciate that more from folks why do people get demonized almost more so when they are willing to buck their own group well in this environment i would have to say that it is the lack of any bipartisanship. It is the silos of information that we are living in. We have Fox News sending out a message that says A, and then you have MSNBC that says not A. Mm -hmm. And people have chosen to listen to only the side that already reflects what they want to be the truth. And so there's not as much urge for Compromise and compromise is now viewed as a dirty word. Um, I think what's happening now to Liz Cheney falls into sort of that category of how could this be? I was happening? heading there. That's exactly what I was going to say, right? Yeah, yeah. Because she's also not she's, not she's not progressive. That's for I'm sure. <laughs> she is more conservative. I mean, you have Stefanik right. as being a possible replacement. Stefanik, who honestly, in the impeachment was, to me, one of the worst members of Congress. It was horrible. She is not as conservative as Liz Cheney. I mean, she she rates like, what, a 40% versus Cheney's 75%. She voted for Trump, voted with Trump so much less, right? Exactly, exactly. And so, and how Republicans who want to be conservative could say, well, we can't have Cheney, it's only because she's willing to speak a truth to power, and that means not supporting false information about Donald Trump. And so what's happened to the Republican Party? This is of grave concern because I do believe we need a two-party system, and we don't have a two-party system if you have a cult around Donald Trump doing whatever he says which is not based on policy. It's not based on a platform. There was no platform. The platform was Donald Trump. Uh, That's a a big concern. What is different? I mean, you obviously know more about Watergate than most people do. And, uh, you know, interestingly, that's just sort of the complete opposite response, in a way, from the party of of a leader who had done something illegal, right? You know, the Republicans did eventually um, say, "Listen, we aren't putting up with this crap." What is it that made the that period in the seventies different than now? I think we're back to the silos. Yeah. Back then, there were three networks and a couple of major national newspapers, and they all agreed on the facts. Mm. There weren't two different visions of America. There weren't two different sets of facts. There were different interpretations based on opinion. What, what, what's the policy that should follow from this fact? And Democrats and Republicans had different answers, but they did not disagree that things were facts. 
And from the very beginning, Watergate was actually bipartisan. Uh, partly it was because of great leadership by Senator Irvin, and then when the impeachment started by uh, Pete Rodino, the representative who was the chair of the Judiciary Committee, who involved the Republicans and treated them as equals. Uh, Republicans were uh, pressed into service to draft the articles of impeachment. And then at the very end, after they had voted for three articles of impeachment, but before they got to even present it to the full House for a full House vote, um, we, the prosecutor, uh, Watergate special prosecutor, had subpoenaed an additional 64 tapes for trial. So this was after the uh, indictment, by which point we had gotten, well, six tapes, one with a seventh with an 18-minute gap and two that right. were not existing. <laughs> um, but then we subpoenaed 64 more, and one of which became known as the smoking gun tape. And as soon as that was released, in which you could hear President Nixon say, yeah, let's use the CIA to stop the FBI from following the chain of the money. And it was in June, which meant he knew immediately about the break-in. He knew about the cover-up. And he had been saying all along he didn't know until March when John Dean told him, which is total nonsense. He knew the day of the break-in he knew about it, and he knew that there was a cover-up going on. But when you hear the president in his own words saying, let's use my power to run this government to get the CIA to say that it's national security and they can't look at this, even though that was totally false. What they were trying to cover up was that it was the Republican campaign fund that paid for the break-in. And the money that was found on the burglars, the $100 bills, could be traced to the cashing of a campaign check in Miami by one of the burglars. That's where the $100 bills they had on them came from. And so that's when the Republicans went to the White House and said, we heard it. It's you're done. We will vote to convict you. Play out. Like, let's role play for a second, Jill Weinbanks. <laughs> what what would have happened had that happened in 2020? Had that exact same scenario gone down? How would they how would today's Republicans, Mitch McConnell and Matt Gates and Jim Jordan have responded? Well, a, an easier question to answer is what would have happened in 1973-74 if there had been a Fox News? Uh -huh. And the answer is Richard Nixon would have served his full second uh -huh. term. And what would happen now um, is it's impossible to even contemplate that it would happen because now Republicans have no wiggle room. They are playing to the people who vote in primaries who are always the most extreme in a party. Right. They're the ones who are the most active. And so you're not looking at the middle of the road Republican. I don't know what's happened to the Republican Party, but it's it's not what we used to think so, of it as. So I want to play contrarian here for a second because mm -hmm. you're one I of the best it. legal minds. So you're going to be able to beat me at this, but I want you to. Um, is is it not true? I mean, you're absolutely right about the fact that they play to the Republicans play to their base to their great detriment, probably, well, hopefully. But yes. isn't it true that the Democrats do that also? I mean, have were there any examples of, I mean, a broken clock is right twice a day. <laughs> and were there not examples <laughs> yeah. of times where Trump might not have been as awful as some of the things that were being said about him were. Um, and I got to be careful as how I say that because I think he was pretty awful. But, <laughs> but were, there not, were there not moments, um, for example, and again, I don't think this was a, uh, an acceptable thing for him to say, nor something I'd want to hear from the president of the United States, but the Billy Bush Access Hollywood tape, when he said yeah. what we all know he said on that tape. And for months and years after that, you know, a lot of people in the, on, in my party, on the Democrat party, who were on the left were saying that he bragged about abusing women. And, mm -hmm. From a, for, a, for an attorney who knows how much words matter, 
did he or was he joking that he could? Um, like, do, did he actually ever grab a woman that way? Do we have proof that he did? I'm not defending him again, but didn't Democrats sometimes take things and, and use them to fire up their base some occasionally? I, well, I hope they do. They should. <laughs> okay, fair but enough. in that particular situation, I don't think there was anything overstated. I believe that he has, I mean, first of all, if you want proof, there are at least 18 Fair. women who have filed complaints against him for actual assault. Not just bad words, but assault. Um, he, he does have two defamation cases that are for bad words, but they're because the women had been basically raped by him, and he denies it and says they're liars, and so they're suing because they want to prove they're not liars. So it does go back to that. Do I think in that Access Hollywood tape he was bragging? I do. I think he was saying, when you're a star, you can do this and get away with it. And he obviously... He felt he could. Women, he, he felt he could and he yeah. did. Um, so, yes, I think he was bragging. I thought that that tape was the end of his campaign. <laughs> I was sure <laughs> Didn't that we all? that was... <laughs> who who would have ever thought that it would take Harvey Weinstein to start the Me Too movement? Right. I mean, I was sure this was going to bring women to the front and say, we can't vote for this man. He's too awful. But, but obviously... There was, it was interesting because I was working, I was doing a piece for The View a few weeks after that, and I went to um, a Trump rally in Wilkes-Barre. Maybe it was a week, I think it was a week after it, actually. It was very, very close. Wow. And I asked them all about that same thing and said, so... Seriously, tell me what, how did you feel about that? And to a lot of people, they just felt, well, you know what, if he'll, I don't, one, I don't think he was really, he really meant it. Two, I think he was just, it was just locker room talk, you know, the same excuses that, that his, yeah. his allies gave. But, you know, to a lot of people, it was, you know, if he'll say something like that, he's not poll testing. You know, he's being authentic. He's being real. And that, and that might have worked. And there are times that I do wonder, again, I always feel like I have to preface these things by saying <laughs> I'm not defending him. <laughs> I'm being contrarian on purpose, though. But I have heard Democrats at times, hell, I've probably done it myself, when rallying a crowd to say, we've got to go and fight like hell. We've got to go and fight like hell and show them X, Y, and Z. And that was not necessarily taken seriously by anybody I was speaking to. I don't rally anybody to fight for real because <laughs> I'm a wimp. But when, what, when he used the terms fight like hell, those were used against him. And he was told that that was actively him telling them to go and storm the Capitol. Is it, have not Democrats done the same thing and gotten away with it only because their supporters were smart enough to not actually take it seriously? <laughs> well, I, Clay, I think it's a great point, and I think it, it does cause one to pause. But where I come out is it all depends on the context. Mm -hmm. And in a situation like what we saw on January 6th, and with the lead-up to it, where you had months of the election was stolen— you have to stop the, what was he telling people who were there? He said, march up Pennsylvania Avenue, go to the Capitol, and stop the steal. There was no way to stop the steal except through violence. And it was a little bit more and, directed. You're right. March up Pennsylvania Avenue and yes. fight like hell is so different than... That's different yeah. than saying this is an issue that really matters to America. Fight like hell to support choice. Fight like hell to support the American worker. Fight like hell to support voter rights. Those are different things than fight like hell to stop the steal, which isn't a steal because the election was won fair and square, and it was won by an overwhelming number of votes. We're talking about, and remember, Donald Trump did not win the popular vote. And he lost two Ever. pretty red states in the process, right? But I'm saying even when oh, he won even the, the first presidency, he, even the first time, he did not win the— I, Hillary had more votes than he did, but he won the election because 
of how unbalanced our electoral process is with the Electoral College, something that really needs to be looked at. But I, I, I just think you have to judge if Elizabeth Warren, who probably says fight like hell quite a lot, <laughs> I, I, I'm going to guess, um, when she says it in the context and what she is talking about is something very different. Fight like hell for legislation, that's one thing. That means write to your congressman. Make sure that they know how you feel. Um, and I don't, I, I, which brings us back to how do Republicans in Congress, both Senate and House, vote against things that the overwhelming number of Republican voters actually support? They want these things. They, the Republicans and Democrats love the infrastructure bill. Why are Republicans voting against well, they also it? Tried, they also said for four years they wanted to do it when Trump was saying he yes. wanted to do it. I mean, listen, I, I, people who listen know I that I'm my case. people who listen know that I'm I'm biased and will own it. But I mean, you, you make a, a strong point. But what would happen to them if? All of the sudden, a few like Jerry Moran from Kansas and, you know, a few of the slightly, slightly more moderates ones. I don't know why Jesus was the name that came to mind, but, you know, Mitt Romney and Lisa Murkowski and Susan Collins. What would happen to them in some of these states, especially like Jerry Moran in Kansas, where it is very dark red, if they dared compromise in any way and say and said, Okay, we'll vote for your infrastructure bill in exchange for, you know, X Republican. Why didn't that get done mm -hmm. anymore? I mean, by anybody? Because again, it it is the media environment, but it's also gerrymandering. Ooh, because girl, now you just hit the jackpot the, with me. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That I mean, that's what it is. Is no member of Congress has to compromise anymore because. They've selected their voters, and their voters are a very narrow But group. in the Senate, they in ain't the got Senate, that excuse. Different. So, no, so what's—and and heck, Wyoming doesn't have the excuse. Granted, it's a very, very red state, but she's not gerrymandered into her district. I mean, I hate gerrymandering. We can talk for hours about that. But, I mean, did people—I mean, did members of Congress, House and Senate, back in the 1970s, trust each other more, even if they disagree? Did they actually have a trust in each other that we don't have now? I think that's a very good point. And there, you know, I go back, I was in the Carter administration, uh, and I, I was in college during Kennedy when he was elected. Uh, I, had, I was a freshman, but, you know, it's within my, my adult memory in a way. And it used to be a time in Washington when Democrats and Republicans dined together, mm -hmm. socialized together, um, all the, the social socialites of Washington held dinner parties that were always bipartisan. And people were friends, and it wasn't considered evil to be friends with someone, and it wasn't considered evil to compromise. And that's what got done, was nobody got 100% and therefore the country won because something got done. And I, I saw a play called City of Conversation, I'm pretty sure is the name of it, which opened in Washington but played in Chicago. And it was about, it started during the Kennedy administration with a socialite giving a dinner party and how the conversation went and how things got done. And then it went into the Carter administration where it started falling apart and there wasn't so much compromise, but there was, still was. And then the third act was Obama, yeah. when there was no conversation, yeah. and when the only thing to be done was make sure that he doesn't get anything he asked for. And we're sort of there right well, now. Well, I mean, we Mitch McConnell have... straight up said that yesterday, right? Yes, yeah. yes, So yeah, exactly. So we're, we're in the same situation where if, even if it's something that the people the American voter, Democrat and Republican love, congressmen are not voting for it. And that's, that's a very dangerous place for us to be because then we're in deadlock. Nothing gets done either way. Would, wouldn't, wouldn't my mother say, <laughs> she voted for Trump and all my family <laughs> did, um, wouldn't they say that, well, that's the same thing that Nancy Pelosi and, and um, 
Maxine Waters and Rashida Tlaib said about Trump, you know, that their number one priority was getting rid of him. I mean, it's it's not as much as I wish it were. And I will say this, I have I do a lot spend a lot of time looking for time looking for ways that I can say that my own party needs to improve and it not be as bad as Democrats. And I can find a lot of parallels, but I've not yet been able to find one where it's as bad on our side as it is on that one. But there are some similarities. I mean, right now, Joe Manchin and Kirsten Sinema, if I see any news about them online or see anything about, if I search Kirsten Sinema's name on Google or Twitter, it's mostly hate against her from her own party for not being willing to be liberal enough. And I think to myself, guys, we've got two Democrats in states that ain't got no business electing Democrats. Can't we cut them some slack? <laughs> um, well, it's, it is a problem because of, for example, the voting suppression laws that are pending and the bills to free us at the federal level from that. But both of them have supported changing voting, voting. But not not getting rid of the filibuster and without getting rid of the filibuster, that's not becoming law. And so we're in trouble. Um, And and Manchin has particularly been outspoken, not only about the filibuster, but, you know, saying, oh, I'm working with some Republicans and they you know, we need to work together. I challenge him to name the Republicans he's working with and what the issues are and what he's working toward. Is it toward the Republican goal or is it toward the Democratic goal that he's working with them? Is he compromising away the Republican position or is he compromising away the Democratic? Interesting, interesting Um, take. I've been, people who, who listen to this show know that I've been really almost Manchin-esque skeptical about getting rid of the filibuster myself, only because I think, God, don't we realize that they're just going to turn around when they get power and toe? I mean, I live in, maybe it's because I live in North Carolina where Democrats actually did have control of the state government for my entire life until 2010. For the first time in 150 years, all of a sudden Republicans had power and bam, they switched it all up and just totally got regressive out of nowhere. And I think to myself, don't we realize that as soon as Republicans get control again, they're just going to dismantle everything that we worked to put together in by getting rid of the filibuster, and we won't have the power to stop them. That doesn't scare you. Well, let, let me say there are a couple of solutions beyond total abolition of the filibuster. But let me start with the filibuster is not serving whatever purpose it was originally intended to serve. Right now, the filibuster means that the minority rules, not the majority. And of course, we have a very unbalanced system right now where you have 70% of American voters represented by 50 senators. And it may be 60%. It's 60 or 70% are represented by the 50 senators who are Democrats. And 30 or 40 are represented by the 50 And that 50 has much more control than the other 50. Do you think they said the same thing when we were minority? Um, I, you know, remember, it is the Republicans who changed some of the filibuster rules for the the courts, for example. So Harry Reid changed it one time and then McConnell changed it. He did. But if we don't do it now... What's going to stop them from doing it when it's to See, their that's the benefit? that's the argument that I finally and got so right there. It's you know that's that's a real issue, and there is a way. I, one of the best proposals I've heard for changing the filibuster is to allow the filibuster to be broken when senators representing sixty percent of the population vote to end it. So that would mean right now, 50 Democratic senators represent more than 60 right. percent of the population. Right. I mean, hell, you could probably get that handled with what six states, right? I mean, you would the senators from New York, Florida, Texas, right. California. That's all you need in order to move yeah, it forward. Uh, you know, Illinois. Let's right. throw in my state. Um, 
Yeah, I mean, I so, but that would be fair. If 60% of the population wants something, then why can't we have yeah, it? Yeah, well, I mean, I, that's um, a, I don't, I could probably be convinced of that, but I will say that the argument that finally got me a few weeks ago um, was the one about, well, they're going to, if we don't end it now, they're yeah. going to end it when they come back into power yeah. themselves. So exactly. might as well just. But that to me, again, is just and, based on nobody trusting anybody. Nobody's trusting and, and, anyone else to hold up norms. Republicans aren't trusting Democrats any more than I trust them. Right. But but you are right. I mean, I'm not suggesting that the Democrats are perfect. They aren't. I mean, yes, they will do some things, but none of the dirty stuff that we have seen in the last administration and continuing now with McConnell, um, have, have you ever seen the Democrats do? And there's many people who urge the Democrats to be more, um, more aggressive yes, do. in defending what we want. And there's some truth to that. There's also some truth to the fact that the Republicans have communicated in a way better. They have better messaging. I mean, Donald Trump got it down to make America right. great again. It's just... And what did the Democrats it's just have? So they funny never had a counter. When you talk to Rep or when I talk to Republicans, it's fascinating to me. They say the exact same thing about us and them. Republicans will say Democrats are so much better at messaging than we are. That's our problem is oh. that they can message so much better than we can, and they are con and and we don't play dirty. I mean, I know. I think it's crazy too, but it's such a matter of perspective, right? Because it's crazy to me that they, but they say Harry Reid stopped the filibuster. And so Mitch was just getting back at him. Um, and I'm like, yeah, but Harry Reid, like if we could keep on going back and back and back to try to figure out who's really was the first person to start it. And I don't know that we'd yeah. be able to determine who was the first to start it. It probably happened in 1942. And don't nobody really remember who started this war in the first place, right? And does it even matter? Isn't it more important to start asking who's going to stop this so that we can make the progress the country means? All right. So, you know, if you're asking for two trillion, is one trillion the right answer? Is 1.5? You know, I mean, there is some number in there that everyone would agree is the right thing. Aren't we better off talking to each other and coming to a compromise, which means, again, Biden doesn't get 100% of what he wants, but neither does McConnell. It's something that we have to come to what's in the best interests of the country. We don't have to be making all or nothing decisions. Do you do you not think, and maybe I'm just, again, incredibly biased. <laughs> what about I mean, maybe? Of course I am. Um, but it seems to, I've been I've been reading recently the uh, Doris Kearns Goodwin's biography of Lyndon Johnson. And as I... Oh. I'm getting through it. I think to myself, God, like Lyndon Johnson in many ways is president again to me. Um, I mean, Joe Biden has a, has an ability that we haven't really seen from anybody in the White House in my lifetime to sort of try to understand that compromise. Who's he? having more trouble who do you think he's going to end up having more trouble from um, as he continues through his term the republicans or people in his party who don't want to see him compromise i think the republicans um but that may be my pollyanna bias too i i was a early supporter of biden i ran as a biden delegate and my main reason was i felt he was the candidate who could defeat trump right that he could attract some middle road, not middle road, some far left Republicans, uh -huh. the, the, the liberal Republicans, and that he could appeal to independent voters. And that clearly he would hold on to the Democratic voters who, even if he wasn't as progressive as they wanted, if he wasn't, you know, Elizabeth Warren or Bernie Sanders, he was a good and decent person and was close enough to their views. So I think he really has all the skills that anyone could have ever hoped for and that he's doing everything he can. But if there's no one listening on the other side, it doesn't matter. When That's why I say when Manchin says, there are Republicans who will want to work with us, I want to know who they are. And I want to know what they want to work with on. Because I don't see any evidence 
that there are Republicans willing to actually sit down and talk. If he named them, though, Jill, don't you think they would be ousted from their party? <laughs> well, that's, but yeah, probably. But isn't that, to me, that's a very, very serious problem. Well, yeah. And, and, we're, and we Liz Cheney's feeling it, it right it. now. Yeah. Her butt's hurting yeah. over that. Do you think she can, do you think she Sit can? Sit down right now? No. <laughs> um, yeah. Do I think she can stay in as the, as the leader? I mean, it sounds as if yeah. though now she's accepted the fact that she can't, right? Um, yeah, and and, I, I, and it's funny to me to see Democrats praising her. Um, I do praise her. I praise her integrity. And I'm glad people are seeing that. But I hope they remember that next time she disagrees with them, that she's not the devil. She just disagrees with them. Like, you know, John yeah. McCain was the hero of America when he thumbs down exactly. that, that vote um, to not repeal Obamacare. And then 20 minutes later, when he voted on a procedural motion to allow the next part to move right. forward, people thought he was, you know, the worst thing that he was abandoning his vote, his constituents in America. And I thought, like, we ca we have to, if we're going to praise people for, for taking a step in the right direction, we can't immediately demonize them. I mean, when he put right. his thumb down, he didn't become a Democrat, anybody. I mean, we, he's still a Republican, right? And Liz Cheney is still going to be a, I mean, she is a Cheney. So she's still going to be a Republican. So I do, while I don't want her to be the Speaker of the House or the President or the, you know, have much power because of her position, when she votes for something that I adamantly disagree with in the future, I will lament it. But I will remember that she at least is a woman of integrity who I think is only who is voting for those things because she really believes them, not just because her party wants her to. Right. Yeah. The saddest thing to me is that the bar is so low that we have to say, isn't it wonderful that someone has shown integrity, <laughs> that someone is willing to accept what is fact, someone is willing to say Donald Trump lost this election. And that's the reason that they cannot stay in power is because they are recognizing reality. Right. That's a pretty low bar. But I agree with you that we have to credit people who take a moral position. Adam Kinzinger, yep. we have to say thank you, Adam. Uh, we have to say thank you to Liz and Cheney. Romney, yeah. We don't have to agree with anything right. she, you know, her conservative position. We have to remember that she, the American Conservative Union thinks she is terrific. And that means that I don't think <laughs> right. she's terrific. But I do think she's got some integrity on this issue. And I believe that, you know, I, I did, I can have, I remember the days of, I'm trying to remember the name of the show. There used to be a debate between uh, a Democrat and a Republican that was, you would listen. It was um, William Buckley and uh, Gore Vidal. Gore yeah. Vidal. And you could listen and go, well, that's, an intellectually stimulating discussion. I still think that I have an obligation to pay taxes to help other people and that, you know, whatever your position is, but you could listen and say, you can be disagree, you can disagree without being disagreeable right. and you can learn and then you can find ways to a middle ground where you may not get everything you want, but you, you make the world a better place and you help people. Um, I don't get, for example, on the infrastructure. What is it that's going on here? I mean, it's something that everybody wanted. It's something that the voters You get want. what's going on here, Jill. It's politics. It's politics. And, and it's not about doing the right thing. It's about winning, right? right. And But yes, but politics wasn't always this kind of uh, winner take all. It, it was always a time of compromise. And I, I, we, we, we're so not in an era of we compromise. We have two levels now, right? And maybe, it's, maybe it, it certainly has something to do with media being far too polarized. But it also has, I have a theory, that it has something to do also with the fact that everything is either a zero or a ten, now, you know, mm -hmm. we don't have any middle grounds. And I think to myself, I look back at 2008, and I did think Sarah Palin was a dumpster fire, but I look back at 2008, where we genuinely 
had two very good Americans running for president who had faith in the country, who wanted the best for the American people, but had very different ways to get there. But I think about that race and how much, you know, my party demonized John McCain and how much the Republican Party demonized Barack Obama. And then I look at how much my party demonized Mitt Romney in 2012 and then six years later thought, oh, crap, shouldn't have done that. <laughs> he was a good guy after all. <laughs> and I think if everything is a 10, if, if John McCain in 2008 was going to ruin America and he was a 10 and Mitt Romney in 2012 was a 10. Like, where did the Republicans have to go next? They had nowhere else. I mean, if everything's a 10, might as well run a a Muppet, which, you know, a a Cheeto, Jesus. Um, (laughs) And so, and that's one of the reasons that I kind of really love Joe from the beginning, too, is because, to me, he was sort of like our response to their 14 wasn't a 15. It was a six or a seven. Yeah. Um, but, but the world hasn't followed, right? Everything that Biden does is still like, he's the most liberal since Karl Marx. And <laughs> he's a communist. Right? He's a socialist. So at that point, what do the, what do Republicans expect that, you know, hopefully Joe will serve his term and maybe, and, and another one too. Um, but what do they expect next? If Joe Biden is a communist, we might as well run a real one next time, you know? Yeah. I'm not um, advocating for that, but I'm just... <laughs> I, I, no, I, 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 I mean, I think the truth is that no matter what they said, they have been unsuccessful in tiring him with those labels. Yeah. That people see Joe as Joe, and they see him as a middle-of-the-road. Um, and, and yet, I mean, there is no getting around that his platform and some of his proposals are definitely on the progressive side, not as progressive as the progressive wing of the party would like, but certainly more progressive than the Republicans want. But there's room for compromise. We're back to the same old you know, thing. There's room for and need for compromise to, to make any progress in America. We're, we're, we're just... The other thing that's that's wrong right now, I think, is that the states have gotten so much power and the Republicans have been wise in spending a lot of time and effort in taking over the governors of many states and the state legislatures. And that's where we're getting into this voting uh, repression stuff is because states are allowing it. And we're getting into a lot of other issues that the states can maybe get away with doing. And if we don't pass laws like, you know, um, HR1, and we don't pass, you know, the George Floyd Policing Act, it's up to the states and they're controlled by Republicans. And so Democrats have to start spending some time, not just at the federal level, but they've got to start spending some time. You know, I come from a pretty blue state, so. I feel safe here. I don't feel like my voting rights are going to be taken away. But if I lived in Kansas, North Carolina, <laughs> North Carolina, I, I'd be plenty worried. Um, so, you know, Alabama, Mississippi, I mean, there's a lot of places well, they gave up on their for rights us to while, worry yeah. about. <laughs> yeah. I mean, so we have to, you know, we have to think about that. Um, you you and, said something a minute ago, and I could, God, I could totally talk for hours because I have so many things I want to ask you about, but <laughs> I try to stay focused. Um, you said something a minute ago about, you said you started by saying the um, moderate, then you called them the far left concert Republicans. And then, and yeah. it made me wonder, I was, I was going to ask you where the Reagan Democrats of today are, but then I thought, do we even know what the political spectrum looks like? Is it the same as it used to be? It used to be you had people who were on the right who were for small government and big corporate opportunity. And on the left, you had people who were for more, um, more government influence and less power for companies. But now I feel like Republicans have on the far right a lot of blue-collar workers who... Mm-hmm. 
are not necessarily voting for Republicans because they want them to give Amazon more authority and less taxes. And you have people on the left voting for Democrats, but they seem to want more can allow like speech to be restricted in ways. I mean, the spectrum doesn't even look the same way that it used to, does it? It doesn't. And, and when we talk about more government, less government, you know, it's more government from the Republican side when it's a matter of a woman's right to choose. Well, no, the government has to get in there and stop that woman's right to choose, but not when it comes to funding pre-K, for example, or any of the other, you know, issues that we think are, that we as Democrats think are good social policies. Um, and, and it has gotten very complicated to try to figure out, and that's why I was having trouble defining it, but there, there is a range of Republicans. There are still, I'm sure, people who are Republican because they think that um, small government is good and that lower taxes, I mean, they, they may still believe in trickle down. I, it's hard for me to believe anybody um, still we're believes We're still waiting that for that trickle. <laughs> We, we've been watching for a long time and nothing's <laughs> happened. So I, I don't get it, but at least as a, um, as a, a, a way of explaining what people think they mean, and maybe they have it's some job creators to now, right? It. Job right. creators, yeah, right. Uh, well, I don't see them creating jobs, and I, I can see where the infrastructure bill creates jobs and creates training for good jobs. Um, a, a little, known fact about me, I was head of career and technical education for the Chicago Public Schools. Um, and I learned so much about what used to be called vocational education, which was a total bad way to call it because nobody thought that it actually gave you vocational training and nobody thought it was education. But that's not what it is these days. It is fabulous training for very good paying jobs. And it is definitely essential to education and it shows people, for example, if you want to be a chef, if you want to be a nurse, if you want to be a, a, a carpenter, well, if you want to be a carpenter, you have to know geometry because if you don't know what a right angle is, how are you going to build a house that's going to stand up? <laughs> and it makes people do better in school because they suddenly understand, Why well, then? I want to be a car mechanic. Why do I need all this right. stuff? Well. If you can't read the manuals, if you can't operate a computer, you can't be a car mechanic nowadays. So it's, and, and this is one of, of course, Biden's, he's very big on this kind of training. And his, his new proposals for infrastructure and for jobs creation include the kind of training to let people really be prepared to deal with the world. And so when you mentioned, as you just did, the blue collar workers who are voting Republican, they are voting against their own best interests. And so then you have to say, well, is it because it's social I was going to ask that, yep. It's this, yeah. I mean, so then it gets down to, is that how we decide? Even though I, as a blue-collar worker, will benefit from the programs that are being offered by the Democrats right now, what is the issue that's stopping me from voting for the Democrats? And we have to, you know, sort of sort that out. And that's some sort way. of a James Carville type argument, right? To bring in yeah. one more Politicon podcast into yes. the conversation, James. A good one. Very a good. good one. He's always said it's the economy, stupid. It's the economy, stupid. And he tends to be right about that. But unfortunately, yeah. we are arguing social issues on both sides. Republicans use social issues to get their folks to vote against their own interest. And Democrats use social issues, too, to get folks to the polls, because that tends to motivate Democrat and progressive voters to show up to vote when oftentimes they won't for other reasons, right? Yeah, that I mean, and everybody's entitled to their own opinion of social issues, um, whether, you know, on any of those issues. But some of them are based on science and fact, and some are not. So, whether but you're it's an elitist, of, Jill Weinbanks, for thinking that you should feel yeah. educated. We should look at college-educated folks for um, for our guidance and information. I learned mm, something no. different on Facebook. 
<laughs> I don't I don't think you have to look at highly educated people to reach the conclusion that the vaccine mm. works, that masks work, that social distancing works, and to make masks a social issue is just beyond my comprehension. <laughs> I just it, it leaves me just totally befuddled as to how that could be. And there are so many things that are said that you go, what, you know, what is going on here? With the recount in Arizona, that's one of the most dangerous things that's going on right now. And it's based on Bamboo what? strands. It's based on... <laughs> well, I have bamboo in my backyard. Oh, Lord. I might have made that paper. And I just looked up for another conversation. I just looked up about American paper makers, manufacturers, they use course, bamboo. Yeah. Bamboo is the most sustainable. Yeah. So who cares that there's the bamboo fastest in it? Grow- it doesn't mean it well, came from China. Know it is. Could it come but from that's, here? That is sort of a lawyer attorney technique too. Sometimes you have to find what you, you have to know the solution you want and work backwards and figure out what arguments yeah. will work for you. And that's sort of an example of that, right? They know what they want is to prove that this is wrong and so let's let's find the arguments, whether they make sense or not, right? Well, so far they're not making well, any sense. So ultimately, they do have to make sense you know somehow, what? and they aren't. It, my my personal opinion is let them do it. It's fine. Biden's president, Harris is vice president. On will move as a country and let them have their own little party uh, over there. No, I don't agree with you on this. <laughs> this one I have okay. to say I do not agree because I I fear. Not fear. I predict that the cyber ninjas are going to say there were 40,000 ballads illegally dumped by the Chinese, and that's going to be carried by Fox News and OAN and Newsmax, and the people who watch those as their only news source are going to go, that's just proof that Joe Biden is not the president of the United States. 70% of them already believe that. Exactly. And, And... I'm, I mean, it's maybe growing higher than that. You have Donald Trump who just said, the, he, using a reference to himself as the president, which he is not, and people believe that. So it is dangerous to let them come out with a phony, baloney description of fake ballots when there are none. And they are hurting the ballots themselves by what they're, they're they were using blue pens, which is Auditors must use red pens because red is not allowed on a ballot. They could be using their blue pens and marking, you know, putting in, okay, this is a Democratic ballot. I'm putting in Trump. That invalidates it. How are we going to know? We, we will never know if they put it in or if the, the voter accidentally voted. Jill, for I can't deal with another ulcer. I don't need another ulcer. <laughs> I can't. <laughs> I want to move on real quick. I, for um, We have some folks who did write in questions um, uh, because they wanted to ask you. And this one I'm going to start with because Shannon from L.A. wants to know, where do you get all your positive energy? It seems like you live weeks in a day. <laughs> so, And you, ha- you stay so smiley every time I see you on TV or hear you. <laughs> I, it's just how I was born. I can't, you know, a lot of my friends have turned to I can't watch the news Mm -hmm. anymore. It's just too depressing. It's too awful. I can't do it anymore. My own husband says after 10 p.m., I can't watch the news because he can't sleep if he does. Um, I just have always been a the glass is half full, and I will continue to be that way. And I'm just I'm basically an optimistic person. Um, I, I just think that's a healthier way to live. And to be, I'm also a person who, my father was one of those people who said, don't complain, do something Mm -hmm. about it. And so I have lived my whole life saying, if something's wrong, I have to fix it. Now, sometimes it doesn't work so well, and sometimes it's not my job to fix. My first marriage, for example. (laughs) But, But in terms of politics, I feel like I can get involved in a way to help make a difference. And so I, I get motivated by that, and that's how I do okay. it. Okay. Al from, I stay medicated. Al from Springfield, Illinois. So not from, yeah, yeah. Oh, yay. Um, if Trump is found guilty in any court, should Biden pardon him in the tradition that Ford pardoned Nixon? 
No. Um, I, and I have to give some history on that because obviously I was totally against forward pardoning, uh, especially pre-pardoning uh, Nixon, who never got indicted because when we wanted to indict him, even after he resigned, while we were debating within the office with the special prosecutor, who was by then Leon Jaworski, he got pardoned and that ended our opportunity. Because whatever argument you could make about indicting a sitting president, it could interfere with his being president while he's, you know, and he has to take care of those things. Not that I think that Donald Trump was, he was off playing golf more than anyone else. Um, but I think that Richard Nixon was forced to resign. He didn't lose the election. He was forced out of office. So he had a severe penalty. He, he did suffer. And there was widespread acceptance of his guilt. In today's world, there is not widespread, you know, Democrats and some Republicans certainly believe he's guilty. I mean, even Mitch McConnell said he hasn't gotten away with what he did on January 6th. There is the civil justice system and there is the criminal justice system. So there is some recognition that he's guilty. But I think in this case, the only way to move on is to make sure that there is a finding of fact. Um, and then I could point to the fact that when you accept a pardon, were he to accept a pardon, he is admitting guilt. There is a Supreme Court case that says if you accept a pardon, it's because you are accepting that you have done something. You have to admit to guilt. When um, Ford sent an offer of a pardon to Nixon, he sent it with a lawyer who brought with him the Supreme Court case to show to former President Nixon saying, you have to understand that if you accept this pardon, you are admitting your guilt. And so, I, you know, there is that to be said, but I, I do think the country would be better off if, if, for example, Nixon had been tried and convicted, maybe Donald Trump wouldn't have felt as free to do what he has done for the last Five that years. that is a good point. Um, I'm going to make the producers mad because I can't let go of you. I want to ask this um, follow up on this and ask if if Donald Trump's catalyst to being elected, um, if his rallying cry was and in, in, in the campaign was the corruption of the Democrats, and if what kept him alive through his four years in office and um, his a good portion of his campaign was, and we got to admit, we got to remember, he did win the second highest votes of any per president in, in in history, right? In this election, he ended up coming yes, in. Yes, but he lost by more oh, than no, seven million. Oh no, I'm not questioning that. So. Yeah, I don't have to. You don't have to hit that. But I'm saying he did inspire a lot of people to show up to the polls yes. for him. Yes. Thankfully, in my, you know, Biden shot inspired more, but he got a lot of folks there, and a lot of that was based on his ability to convince them that the deep state and the swamp and the liberals were out to get him. It was a witch hunt, a witch hunt. All they want to do is get him. Given that, if he were to be convicted after a trial, and then Biden were to pardon him and keep him from having to serve time, wouldn't that sort of take the teeth out of his argument about everyone being out to get him, about it being a witch hunt? Wouldn't the the a pardon kind of take away some of that fuel for him? And wouldn't not pardoning him perhaps simply just fuel the fire for the next person, the Josh Hawley, the Matt Gates, to run on, see what they did to Trump, we got to take the country back? I mean, is, is there not a bit, I'm not advocating for a pardon or against it, but wouldn't there possibly be some political benefit to going ahead and doing it just to say, Y'all, shut the hell up with your we're out to get him. I pardoned him. So you can't call that shit on me. I mean. You make a very persuasive argument, and there is absolute truth to it. Um, the reason I'm glad I'm a lawyer and not a politician 
is because I can sit and say, this is what the right. law is, right. and this is what justice requires. Politics is a different mm -hmm. thing. Uh, when I was deputy attorney general, I was very glad that the attorney general had to make the political decisions, and I could say to him, here's what's right. Um, and I think, you know, if Donald Trump is convicted, I, no, but I don't care if he goes to jail. I think it would be absurd to have a former president in jail. I mean, I can't even imagine the cost yeah. of housing him. It, it would be, it would right, be because he wouldn't lose Secret but Service can, protection because he had not been impeached, right? Yeah, um, but I think conviction and a trial, an open trial. I, I, I can't help but think that the Derek Chauvin trial had to have influenced many people who thought, you know, he wasn't guilty. Watching that trial, you could not watch it and not conclude that he was very guilty. Right. And I think that watching a well-crafted presentation of evidence on one of many uh, possible indictments of Donald Trump, whether it's for January 6th, whether it's for you know, one of a number of other things, uh, including sexual assault. I think that people would see the evidence and be persuaded in the same way that the Republicans were in Watergate and that many Republicans were after watching the Derek Chauvin uh, You're right, Jill Weinbanks. You are an optimist. Because <laughs> I don't know if they would. Last question from a guest, from a, from a listener, um, before we wrap up. Tomas from Albuquerque, New Mexico. Should Justice Breyer retire? Well, first of all, Justice Breyer was a Watergate colleague of mine, so I know him. And I think he's one of the best justices we've had. I, and as you mm -hmm. pointed out, he's one of your favorites. Um, I think that we are in a very serious situation. And at some point, and I leave this completely up to him, but there is something to be said for having the votes to get a new younger justice who will last long into the future um, so that there is some reason to say that retirement at some point is something that he needs to consider for the good of the country because it is quite possible, based on history, the president, you know, whatever party the president is from, tends to lose in the midterm. And we are at such a narrow margin, mm -hmm. I mean, no margin in the Senate, and a very, very narrow one in the House, it means that we'll get nothing done because the Republicans, I mean, even when you had a Democratic president and you ha they wouldn't allow a hearing for Merrick Garland to go to the Supreme Court. And, and you know, how good is it that he's right. now the attorney general who's making some really good and hard decisions? Um, so I think, unfortunately, yes, I think we need to make uh, a younger Democratic appointed Supreme Court. It's tough to say that, I know, because I love him, but it, I'm, it's, I, it's hard tough. to, yeah, I'm glad I don't have to make the decision. Do you talk about all yeah. of these topics on Sisters in Law, hashtag Sisters in Law, everything? It's not just legal stuff. You cover it all, right? Oh, we, well, we don't do much politics, right, right. really, but we, uh, there are so many legal issues that have political implications. And so, um, for our next episode, we're talking about, for example, sexual assault in the military and what the current uh, commission may be recommending and, and how that impacts not just military uh, prosecutions, but what influence it will have on the civilian population. And um, so we, we talk about a whole variety of things. We will be talking about uh, the, the Chauvin trial and the motion for a new trial that has been filed. Which is typical. Which I mean, is, I'm going to tune in tomorrow so that I can hear yeah. that conversation. But just to yeah. tease, it's not uncommon. That's something that most attorneys try to do anyway, right? It's, it's the short answer is this was totally yeah. expected and is totally unwarranted. Right. 
it will not, first of all, there will definitely not be a new trial. I mean, I can say that and I would put right. money on it. It will get appealed. And I don't think that there is any grounds for reversing the judgment of Well, don't give it all jury. away because people need to find you yeah. tomorrow uh, yeah. and yes, listen. for sure. Um, Kimberly Atkins, Barbara McQuaid, you, uh, Joyce Vance. Joyce Vance. Um, on, and you have to search hashtag sisters-in-law uh, when you look for it. But And hashtag is unfortunately part of what you have yes. to include in the search. search. For it. But you, if, you, if, you, if you're listening to this, then you already have it on the page for your podcast anyway, because it's in right. the Politicon family. But you also do iGen politics, right? So you talk yes, about politics there too. We do. And that one is an interview format as opposed to just the four of us talking. This I do with an 18-year-old named Victor Xi, who I met when he was 17 and running as a Biden delegate, the youngest delegate for Biden. And we just, you know, we talk from our different perspectives of age, although we mostly agree on everything quite amazingly. And we have had the most amazing guests. We've had everybody from cabinet officers, senators, congressmen, um, Neil deGrasse Tyson, um, Mark Cuban. So it's, it's not just politicians, although we talk to them about particularly Mark Cuban, we talk politics with. Um, and one of my favorites, of course, was Secretary Albright, who is also a pin wearer. She wrote a book called Read My Pins. <laughs> so we talked about her book on fascism, but then we talked about her book about pins and the messages they send. But so, is Katie Holmes um, going to be playing her in the, in the movie no. version of her book? No, I get Katie <laughs> yes. Holmes. I get Katie Holmes, and she is not in Connecticut filming The Watergate Girl. She is filming a different movie in Connecticut, but she is going to be playing In me. The Watergate and Girl, she, which is your book that people should Watergate grab Girl. and read, too, because yes. it's got even more yes. in-depth stories than the ones you shared with us already. Listen, it does. You got, you can, there's so many places you can find Jill Winebanks, and <laughs> God love her for it, because I love this, and I'm so glad that you— joined us because I've been saying to the producers for m months now, please call her and have her on, please. Uh, and I finally just had to, I think, yell the other day <laughs> and say, damn it, <laughs> I'm just ready for it. Well, see, and I was feeling hurt that you had my other sisters-in-law on and you hadn't had me, but I'm very glad to meet you. And I'm also very glad that iGen Politics is now part of yes. the same family. We're all Politicon family. You can people. find all of that on in our show notes, I, uh, I Politics and hashtag sisters in law. But what we call ourselves, I have to ask you to close. Jill Winebanks, how the heck are we going to get along? Because everybody's going to be an optimist like me. Then we're going to get along and we're going to learn how to talk to each other and to hear each other. And hopefully, facts will once again reign.